Welcome to episode 68 of Rebel City Podcast. This week's guest is Graham Bowman. Um, Graham has wrote a book called Empire First, Churchill's War Against D-Day. Um, I wanted to get Graham in just to talk about not only just um, Winston Churchill and the subject of his book, a wee bit about his past as well, but also why we aren't taught the reality of World War Two, World War One, and the British Empire in general. Now, Graham's a extremely intelligent guy, um, well, <laughs> ridiculously well read, and his book is well researched and a brilliant read. And when it does come out, um, I think it's coming out sort of June, July time this year. I would absolutely encourage everybody to go and buy it. Um, what really struck me about Graham was how down to earth he was even though he's very well educated um and had attended uh, cambridge um but growing up in greenock i think and as a working class background has meant that graham's managed to keep his feet firmly in the ground but um this is a subject uh not only like the the mythology that surrounds world war Two and how that has informed the sort of baby boomer generation and now we're still seeing the ramifications of that with Brexit. But also it calls to question our education system and why we aren't sort of taught the truths of the atrocities that former British governments have enacted on other nations around the world. But also, as is demonstrated in Graham's book, this sort of Britishness, this sort of like not being able to sort of admit that you're wrong. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to like, let you sit back and enjoy this episode and also encourage you to keep an eye out for Graham's book when it comes out. So, hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. This week's guest is Graham Bowman. How's it going, Graham? I fine. Uh, I well, nearly get trapped in Greenock yesterday with the with the wind and rain. Yes. What is the, the what is this storm called? Storm Dennis. I don't know. It Dennis. should definitely be something more menacing than what they've been calling them. Though, like I don't Dennis feel Dennis. Dennis. <laughs> I don't feel Dennis to be honest with you. So, Graham, um, do you want to just? I mean, we're, we're here to talk about the book that you've wrote, Empire First: Churchill's War Against D Day which uh, me and Matt have had the pleasure of getting our hands on an advanced copy and we've had a read um, some like really hard-hitting, incredible stuff in there. But before we talk about the book, do you want to just tell us a wee bit about yourself? Because I think that the people that listen to your podcast are vast, like, sort of petri dish of people. I don't think that's the best <laughs> way of putting it. But, what a nice but, comparison. Yeah. Um, but for people that, I mean, broad we, audience. we get people in the Netherlands and America and yeah. Canada that listen and so um, it would be good just to have a wee introduction. No, I think a wee bit of bio is always good just to give context. Yeah. So um, if, I, if I was describing myself uh, sociologically, I'd say I'm a sort of working class hybrid. You know, um, I'm from Greenock, uh, which uh, is a well, I used to call it a grimy little satellite at Glasgow, but 25 miles away. Yeah. Uh, working class background, but I was very lucky. I had a very loving, supportive, encouraging family environment. And I uh, grew up in the 60s and 70s when there were things like grants, etc. Yep. 
So to cut a long story short, um, after doing my first degree at Strathclyde University, and then I did a master's um, in America, I did a PhD at Cambridge, King's College, Cambridge, um, which was quite an interesting journey. So I'm, I'm saying that because, um, well, to be honest, I found that a rather underwhelming. I mean, it was interesting. It was an underwhelming experience. Um, it was very interesting to see the next generation of Britain's ruling class you know, face to face. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and see what a disappointing lot they were. <laughs> <laughs> um, Did you get any sort of? I mean, my, my girlfriend uh, got a scholarship to go to a, a, a like a high end uh, acting school in London when she was eighteen, and one of the things that she spoke about was basically like the almost sort of xenophobic attitude that she got towards her. Um, and other well, people, because she was Scottish. She was Scottish. All right. mm-hmm. Because there was a lot of sort of middle to upper class people. Um, because it, you either get the scholarship to go or it's going to cost you a couple of hundred grand to go right. to this sort of stage school. And she found that quite a lot of them were kind of in that sort of jocks, don't buy their own drinks and all right, well, poor scum. I look in the nose at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I can't say I found I ever had any experience of that. I mean, the good thing. When I went to Cambridge, I'd, I'd done a first degree at Strathclyde, studied in America, I did a master's at a, a very good Carnegie Mellon University. So and it was in Pittsburgh. History? Was this in history? Yeah, I did this? modern history at Strathclyde, then I did an MA in history at Carnegie Mellon University. And as the name suggests, it was partly funded by Andrew Carnegie's money because yeah. mm-hmm. he was Pittsburgh Steel. And I think, well, I met their academic criteria, but I think the people at at the university quite like the idea we'll have a Scotsman here, yeah. given that we're partly funded by a, a Scottish steel magnate, etc. You know, because the um the university's football team was the, the Carnegie Mellon Tartans. Oh, right. <laughs> and the gymnasium was the Caber Club. Oh wow. <laughs> right. So but the good thing about that is when I went to Cambridge I'd be in my mid twenties. So when things were a bit sort of freaky and odd I thought, it's this place that's fucked up. It's not me. <laughs> you know, if, if, if had I gone there straight out of school, I might have found it a bit more overwhelming mm-hmm. and intimidating. Yeah. But uh, my, you know, I had a decent idea who I was. Um, as I said, it was, it was a bizarre place. I mean, um, I didn't, I'd taken a year out after coming back from America. So I didn't have any... And I, I tried to look for work, but it was the mid-80s. Cut a long story short, I, I applied to do a PhD just as a fallback position. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, so I didn't, I didn't really have anybody to, I didn't have any academics. I was living down in London. I didn't have any academics who could say, all right, you know, the Cambridge College structure, all the colleges have a different personality. I didn't know all this. Um, and I ended up just through freaky, bizarre circumstance and misinformation at Maudlin College. It's actually spelt Magdalene, but it's pronounced Maudlin, which at the time was maybe the last male-only college in Oxbridge. Right. And I was there for two terms, and I thought, I'm, I'm not staying here. It's, um, It was racist, sexist, and elitist. Mm, right. And the people I wanted to hang about with, i.e. those who wore black and you know had funny hair and stuff like that, <laughs> right. tended to be at King's College. Okay. which was um, a bit more liberal and progressive. You know, Keynes had been there, Salman Rushdie and all that. Yeah. So at Easter, I got a transfer to King's College. Um, the guy at King's, um, 
said, uh, you know, why do you want to leave? And it, I just said, well, maudlin's racist, sexist, and elitist. And he says, well, <clears throat> fair enough. Um, but we, we don't want to be seen to be poaching you, so you have to go back to them and t get them to let you leave. Mm. So you're you not can poaching then join. You. Yeah. So I went back, and I remember speaking to the um, senior tutor or graduate tutor, whatever it was, um, and he says, why do you want to leave? And in my naivety, I just said, well, it's racist, sexist, and elitist. And he nearly fell off his chair. Now, at the time, they didn't let women in. Mm -hmm. Right, so, so that's a sexist check straight Well, <laughs> if you want to be funny about it, you can say, all right, they don't let women in, so they don't, they're not discriminating against yeah. them. <laughs> but later on in the conversation, after him rebutting the suggestion that it was sexist, later on in the conversation he said, well, we don't want to let women in because it will weaken the strength of the rowing team. Right? Okay. So they, and I, I just thought, right, there's no point in having... We're obviously in different planets and here. And yeah. completely different spheres. There's no point in having right. any further dialogue. I'll just nod and be polite. And the end of it, he just thought, right, you can go. You can go. Um, so I did my PhD there um, and enjoyed it. It was on... Well, basically, when I finished it, I wanted to use a phrase. It was, it was about black studies, black power in Californian higher education in the 60s and early 70s. So it had nothing okay. at all to do with World War II. And I wanted to use a title that A, would be kind of grabby and uh, also reflect the uh, assertiveness of the black community at that mm -hmm. time. So it was a good phrase on the go at then, which was actually used in a speech on one of the campuses I was studying called, uh, somebody had started, a, one of the Black Panthers, you know, said, you know, up against the wall, motherfucker. <laughs> so I wanted to call my PhD up against the wall, motherfucker. <laughs> Colon. Black studies and public higher ed, you know, California right. public, you know, the blah, 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 long explanatory title. Now, at that point, uh, I had a really good supervisor, um, and he just he just smiled when I said that. He didn't have any problem with it, but he says, Graham, what I think you should do is write to the degree committee just with that title and see if they'll accept <laughs> it, rather than submit your whole PhD with that title yeah. on it. So I did, and I got this letter back, and it said, we're not accepting this title, and no further correspondence on this issue will be entered oh, into. And I thought, that just about sums up. You know, I should have the right to call it what I think is appropriate. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I was going to put asterisk instead of UCK. I wasn't yeah. going to be. Yeah. But it was, I mean, quite a lot of, you know, history books and that start with a quote, and then colon, the boring of stuff. Of course. And it was a quote used on the most militant, you know, black and third world studies, uh, studies campus, you know, San Francisco State University in 1968. Mm -hmm. So it was completely relevant. And I thought, well, if I was in a bookshop and running, you know, looking at a shelf or in a library and I saw that, I'd maybe take it down Absolutely, and have a look yeah. at it. But that that sort of thing isn't important. It's still echoed and, you know hands up and you know they don't shoot and you know they can't breathe and there's still variations yeah. of that and you know particularly like and actually the, t the term motherfucker doesn't have the um the meaning that most people probably assume it has because it refers to white slave owners having foot raping their mums yeah the mothers i did not know that so it, what it's not about incest uh -huh. It refers to the, the slave experience, okay. so it's got an extra resonance if a black American, African-American uses, uses it. Uses that word. It has mm. a certain, well, at the time, amongst the politically articulate yeah. geezers and the Panthers, it had a certain resonance 
which has probably got lost in translation a wee bit. Right. Mm-hmm. So that and other things uh, disinclined me from pursuing an academic career. I mean, I looked at the other people doing PhDs um, in my sort of field and I thought, Jesus, if they're going to be my colleagues, I might as well commit suicide. They were so <laughs> bloody dull. And I, I'd started writing uh, in my spare time doing my PhD. I'd started writing a screenplay, um, okay. which, and it, it had a good title, the Johnny Rotten quote, you don't need permission for anything. And, and it was it was set in a school like the one I went to, and it mm-hmm. was over the course of a weekend, you know, kids see their first punk gig, they hear yep. the Sex Pistols for the first time, and when they go back to school on Monday, they say, we're not going as pupils, we're going as a virus to mm-hmm. create <laughs> havoc. And so there's a bit of a punk edge to not just this, but obviously, like, it sounds as though your previous work and your sort of, sort of general attitude, I would imagine that, you know, King's College Cambridge would be, generally speaking, quite a, an, a you know, unwelcoming place for somebody with punk sensibilities. No, there, there was... No, there was people wearing. This was in the mid to late eighties. Right. There was, was people with seventy four, seventy five. Well, yeah. No, it was it was people with mad hair and uh, you know a lot of black and black clothes, um, mm-hmm. gothy, punky, alternative. At the time, Cambridge was at the sort of cutting edge of moving away from the old stuff, and like I ended up running one of. There was a bar. It used to run during the vacation. And we made a bit of money, and I gave it to the college to, as a contribution towards their initiative to go. You know, they had the initiative to go and make Cambridge seem more accessible to a wider range of possible okay. applicants. So they were doing uh, a reasonably good job of moving away. They just I mean, didn't want that in your. Does anyone that punk sensibility in your literature, though? Well, uh, see, that's the thing. Uh, King, the college, it was the degree, history degree committee, the history faculty mm-hmm. were the ones that were saying, we're not having that title. Yeah. Do you um, think they got the, the nuance in the title or do you think it's just purely they didn't want like it to offend people or do you think that they knew the connotations of that word they to the subject more, matter right. that you were writing about? Well, I, I, I might still have the letter back at my mum's house, they said something along the lines of we'll only accept descriptive titles only. And right. I thought that's bogus because, yeah, I've got this controversial intro title and then below it, it's got all the, the explanations. Of course. Mm-hmm. But the key phrase was no further correspondence <laughs> on this issue will be entered into. So my supervisor was right. Uh, I responded to that. But I didn't change the content, but I, I deliberately chose a really dull, uninspiring, uh, boring title, you know, Rise and Fall of an Educational Experiment, mm. colon, blah, 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 blah. Right. So uh, <laughs> I got the PhD. Uh, the only disappointing thing about that is the two Egypts that examined me. When you're writing something like a PhD, you you get a a list of, you know, the the protocol, how it should be set out. Mm -hmm. And the two Muppets, you've got got an oral exam. You submit the PhD, you do an oral exam, and I don't mean they look at your teeth. They speak to (laughs) it's a viva. You've got an internal Cambridge University person and an external, you know, as a sort of check. And neither of them had bothered to read the most up-to-date guidelines from the history faculty saying how a PhD should be set out, uh, which came to light during the course of it. Fortunately, I had a copy and I was saying, no, this way of referencing is acceptable. And no, 
you only put in the bibliography the books you actually quote directly from. Because mm-hmm. um, the Muppet from outside, he, he, he obviously read it and checked the bibliography. And he started asking me all these daft questions. Like, who is W.E.B. Du Bois? And oh, what journal did Carter Woodson edit? And, and that's like saying to somebody who's written a PhD in the history, like, who is Hitler and what country was Mussolini from? And I couldn't believe how basic the questions right. were. Mm-hmm. And then the penny dropped. I'd, I'd read all these books. I knew about Carter Woodson, historically Negro colleges they used to be known. I knew about um, you know W.E. Du Bois. I'd read his yep. autobiography. I'd been influenced him. I hadn't quoted from them directly in the text. And he'd looked at the bibliography and thought, oh, he doesn't know who these people are. And that's why he was asking me. Yeah, try to catch you. So imagine the Wimbledon tennis final and the umpires get using out-of-date rules. Aye. Or the World Cup final and they're using the wrong off, offside rule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because you spend three or four years writing a PhD. I'm preparing for that final. Uh-huh. It's a big thing in your life. It's like being in the final at Wimbledon. And I think... It would be incumbent on those who are doing the examining to be up to date. With Absolutely, the rules. I. So again, so this whole mystique of Cambridge is well it's still populated by people who make mistakes. Yeah, yeah. fallible, <laughs> frail human beings, and um, a lot of them. This uh, goes back to something that we spoke to Mary Black about, where we, we were previous to that that episode and speaking to her. You kind of like have this idea of people like. Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson. Right, politicians and in general. Politicians in general is like almost like infallible. And then when we spoke to her and we were asking her about like what are they actually like? And she's like, it's just human beings mm. with just as many doubts as everybody Aye. else. You get that sort of flavour of like, right, no I get it a wee bit more. That, yeah. that, 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 there's an idea out there that politicians, every Every word and every move that a politician makes is calculated, and that it's <laughs> it's agenda based. When actually, I think that they are not that they're not that fucking smart to, mm, to start yeah. off with, and they don't really they don't really get the impact. Can of I like, idea what we'll probably touch on yeah. later on. My, as well. my view is you could stand at a Glasgow bus stop and meet people as intelligent as those you'd meet at Cambridge or Oxford. Mm-hmm. The big difference is CAC, confidence, assets, connections. Yeah. That's what people at Cambridge and Oxford and those sort of backgrounds have. What we've come to sort of refer to self-belief. They are, I mean, they go to separate schools. They're educated like a separate caste. Yeah. They believe they are the masters of the universe. Absolutely. And that's the difference. People who don't come from that privileged background can sometimes lack that level of... Self belief, yeah, yeah, the imposter syndrome, etc. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, mean, I can't remember who, if we were talking about this between ourselves in a previous episode, or we were talking to a guest that um, had a conversation with a group of mates and we had been watching the the family on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen this documentary. It's about the, the Christian right in America right, yeah, yeah. and how they've enabled Trump. Mm. Basically, that that's the narrative that it gets to. And we were talk, just chatting away and the, the way that my mates or my the friends that were in the room were speaking about these people and I was like, but like, listen, they think that God has put them where they are. Mm. They, they actually think that capitalism has triumphed over communism because it's God's will that <laughs> God put Bush and Obama and Trump. So when you're, you can't argue with people like that when they've yeah. got this attitude of 
this is the will of a higher power. How can you reason with somebody? So you're poor because God wants you to be poor. And I'm rich and privileged because God wants me to be privileged and rich. I think as well. And it creates this, this like almost psychopathic sort of viewpoint of how their decisions. So if they, they have a thought, they think I should do this, then they can back that up rationally in their mind by going, I'm purposefully here to do this job. So mm. I am right Aye. always. And it's like, that scares me. That really genuinely scares but there's me. There's elements of that in obviously the, the sort of mythology that surrounds Winston Churchill himself. Like I know that he's widely considered, you know, particularly in, you know, amongst English people as one of the greatest Britons ever, um, you know, man of destiny, you know, you know, sent, you know, all these types of things that we've just talked about in the context of privilege. I think a number of them are believed about somebody like Churchill. And I think, reading through the book, like, there's definitely elements where you see an actual real person for the first time, or mm. certainly I did, I did a bit of history, didn't do a lot of work, it was more industrial revolution stuff and, you know, spinning jennies and all that kind of carry on, but like, how do we separate, or, you know, is this a consideration for you, how do you separate the real person and Churchill for the mythology as you begin the process of sort of writing this book? Well, there's two things. A quick way of like, responding to it. It's a very uh, good point. Um, there's a book published by Robert Rose James. Uh, you familiar with the, the name? No, I'm just he, not. He, he was a conservative <laughs> um, MP, so he's not a radical left-wing maverick. Um, and he wrote a book called Churchill, which covered the period 1900 to 1939, and it's Churchill, A Study in Failure. Yep. And I think that's quite appropriate mm -hmm. um, because had it not been for the cataclysm of 1939-45, he'd just be a, a kind of minor, footnote. colourful footnote yeah. in history because, um, you know, he screwed up. He, well, I don't think any rational analysis leads you to believe that he was a good chancellor, you know, which that's a big job. He did it for yeah. five years. Yep. Um, and he pursued policies that um, just contributed to Brit not only Britain's economic decline and uh, a lot of hunger and uh, unemployment in various places, but he also um, uh, introduced, he, there was a policy of military austerity, which is one of the reasons why Britain was not very well prepared to yeah. go to war in 1939. Mm -hmm. There had been two decades after... The First World War ended. Two decades of cutting everything to the bone in terms of you know yeah. military spending. And Churchill, if you consider that like twenty years, Churchill was the Chancellor for a quarter of that time, mm -hmm. and he cut the Navy's budget, you know, really savagely. Yep. So and also the thing is, is I've sort of well, I've used various quotes because I'm not a big expert, but you can imagine. If you've got shipyards or arms factories and they're not getting orders, they lay people off mm -hmm. or, you know, there's no growth. So people, you know, toolmakers and that or uh, shipwrights go to America yeah. or places or Australia where there are jobs, where they can progress. Mm -hmm. People don't invest in research and development. Mm -hmm. So your military uh, industries, you know, start to run down. Yep, And that is one of the reasons why Britain was not in a strong uh, position to begin with to offer a robust challenge to Adolf Hitler in the second half of the 30s. So he had a fairly sizable impact on like well inadvertently on like the appeasement that 
yeah. was laid at the feet of, was it Chamberlain? Yeah, that? Chamberlain was the Prime Minister, but, um, well, it, I don't want to overlay, I mean, obviously I've put a big emphasis on Churchill, because he was the Prime Minister and Minister of Defence during the war, but I'd, uh, I'd blame the whole uh, ruling elite well, just think about it. At the time, Britain was the biggest imperial power in the world, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So, th- uh, there's a great play, play by Bertolt Brecht, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Uwe, and he basically uses um, Chicago gangster, you know, Al Capone, mm-hmm. as a way to explain the rise of Hitler and Nazism. Okay. So, the British Empire is just gangsterism. It's a big version it's global gangsterism yeah, yes. with fancy titles <clears throat> and uniforms to legitimize ah. it now if you've got a gangster empire you need people on the ground to defend your assets against rival gangsters mm-hmm. absolutely but after the um first world war a lot of the rival gangsters had been beaten or they weren't threatening us so the ruling elite as always says right we'll cut back in expenditure Mm-hmm. Now that's a stupid thing because if you've built up, if you've been a successful global gangster imperialist, there's going to be other people will want to take what Absolutely. you own. They'll want to, take, you know, if you run this bar, a rival gang, a young hungry, you know, gangster yep. gang like the Nazis will want to take it over the Japanese or you know, mm-hmm. especially if they see you have not got troops there on mm-hmm. the ground to defend it. Yeah. So it, they shot themselves in the foot. They, 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 we keep getting told. Greatest empire in the world, greatest empire, and blah, blah, blah. Where was the defense for it? Mm-hmm. They cut. If you're going to have all these possessions that you have stolen through military conquest, bullying, coercion, mm-hmm. economic strangulation, if you're going to hang on to your ill-gotten gains, you need muscle on the ground. That's yeah. And the muscle atrophied over two decades. So when Hitler, Mussolini, the Japanese uh, you know, military hierarchy come on, I think, brilliant. Look at all this wonderful territory and the British Army really hanging on to it. Yep. You know, the more recent equivalent is there have been cutbacks, you know, the Falklands War. Mm-hmm. Britain had cut back on what it was, its defence posture in the South Atlantic. Yeah. So that sends out a signal to other unprincipled, greedy gangsters. Yeah. Shits. Here's all this great stuff for the taking. Yeah, and the guy's there all So week. as Chancellor of the Strecker for five years, who was a great architect or a contributor or a continuer, of military austerity, Churchill has got to carry the can. Mm-hmm. Can he be exempted for that? Was it from that arrogance, or was it? It just took their eye off the ball. Or well, it was. I mean, so I mean, there is a wee section. Um, America withdrew into itself largely as long as it had sort of dominance over you know yeah. North and South America and the Pacific. You know, it's very lucky. It's. Well, sort of like us, it's an island or a country yeah. that dominates a continent and it's got big oceans on both sides. Mm-hmm. So it sort of withdrew into isolationism. Um, Germany was defeated. You know, the Kaiser was uh, exiled, etc., etc., and they had the Versailles Treaty, which limited, limited the number of submarines, the size of the army. Yeah. Um, so they just felt like the, the, there was no threat? Yeah, for... And there was some validity in that for a while, um, you know. In the so Russia, the former Russian Empire, you know, it had it was, <laughs> it was preoccupied yeah. with some of Communism. its own domestic yeah. issues mm-hmm. after a while. The idea of exporting the revolution get replaced with socialism in one country, and they'd been a big rival of ours in the sort of Middle East. Yep, you know, they they were always looking at India. You know, can we get in there? Um, 
you know, and the nexus for that was the Northwest Frontier, which is basically Afghanistan, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So some of our imperial rivals were off the scene for a while. Yeah. So it was maybe justified for a few years, but then things began to change and, you know, the Germans and, you know, as often happens, although Germany and the Soviet Union started collaborating on, you know, the Germans were allowed, started developing some of their early, um, you know, tank warfare things on Soviet territory. They didn't do it in Germany. They were doing it overseas. Okay. And there was a, a... the British were tank territory, but into that, that eh? I think that you referenced in the book that sort of area of land. It was just perfect for tanks because it was all sort of yeah, low, it was all flat, and, flat. Um, and they could do it away from prying eyes and sort of keep up to speed with some new interesting developments. So, I, I just think it's a dangerous thing if you're king gangster. You've got to accept there's all the we, and it always happens. You know, you've got. Big bands that are the stadium headliners for years, and then the next generation comes up, mm-hmm. and they want to knock you off your pedestal. Absolutely. So the Japanese, you know, the Mussolini, Hitler, and the Japanese leadership wanted what Britain had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just gangsterism. That's at the end of yeah. the day. Do you think that's why there's a outright refusal now to cut military spending in America, and why like people like Sanders is such a big threat to? Potentially, like, is it? I don't know if it's if, if you could quite. I could quite see them thinking along this way because it's too moral based that they would be afraid of another huge world war if somebody like Bernie Sanders get in control and cut their military spend in half. Let's just say, would it lead to the rise of another rival, or is there anybody to rival America on like the sort of military front anymore? Well, uh, as so, a historical fact, yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, one of the great virtues of being a history historian is exempts you from talking about things which are actually happening here. Yeah. But I would say two things, uh, and just to echo, when Dwight Eisenhower was stepping down um, from the presidency, one of the things he said in his farewell speech was, beware the military-industrial complex. Absolutely. So there's such, you know, all those big arms firms have lobbyists, you know, that they're, they're interwoven with the political elite there. Oh. There's a, it's a big business. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the biggest business on the planet, I the think. Modern, one I, of the, modern, uh, sorry, the modern American economy is tied to the military-industrial complex in a way that we've never seen since, you know, probably World War Two when America ramped up its military production mm-hmm. in the wake of Pearl Harbor. I mean, it's the cornerstone of their entire economy. And if we were to reduce it, not only would you see maybe some of the impacts that you've seen during that military austerity under Churchill, but like the knock-on effect for the wider economy in America would be uh-huh. catastrophic. I mean, they could invest all the money that goes into the military and environmental things, yeah. you know, green energy, and you know retooling the economy to yep. be more mindful of its environmental impact. The other thing that's going to make the next few years kind of interesting and possibly very fraught is the fact that there's serious competition out there in the form of, for example, China. Mm-hmm. And, you know, increasingly India is going to be quite a strong player. Definitely. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> the 20th century is sometimes thought of as the American century. Mm-hmm. You know, who's going to be the dominant figure? Yep. I think I'm some sort of, 
again, I don't want to get involved in any clumsy historical analogies, but you know, it's like the Roman Empire, you know, getting into decline and Aye. they're trying all sorts of remedies to try and maintain mm-hmm. their hegemony. You know, the Romans were threatened by various tribal things coming in from uh, Eastern Europe and the steppes mm-hmm. and etc. Um, so I think they're, they're trying in increasingly bizarre things like Trump to mm-hmm. maintain their position. Um, you know, and for two or three decades, you know, people growing up in America, you know, it always used to be the next generation will have it better. That's gone. Yeah. People are in many ways worse off than their Absolutely. parents. Uh-huh. Parents had, had, had the opportunity to hope for things getting better. Now people can't often afford mortgages and stuff. Definitely. So there's a great anxiety in America. Um, and yeah. And the, the developed you know, world in general, yeah. feeling this great anxiety. Yeah, and I suppose there must be, you know, the, the message uh, that's going out that, that's obviously very appealing to young people from people like Greta Thunberg, and that, that's a challenge to the, the the capitalist that system that's been entrenched for such a long while. There's going to have to be a reckoning at some point. So they're very nervous and anxious, and some people are just very profoundly conservative, where you know, small C, and don't want to embrace any change and if an ideologue or a demagogue comes along and says, see all the problems we're having, it's the outsiders, it's the Jews, it's the black people, it's people with different religious beliefs, it's the foreigner, it's Aye, the European. It takes away attention away from the fact that, you know, blaming the bankers for the 2008 crash. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's where the problem lies. Mm-hmm. Previous administrations for And similarly, you know, with the Great Depression in the 30s, you know, if you're telling generally, oh, it's the Jews, then people aren't looking at mm-hmm. global capitalism and banks. Mm-hmm. This is one of the kind of quite sort of, again, you might want to avoid these clumsy historical comparisons, but like the rise of fascism in the 30s in Germany, again, that other enough people, whether it be Jews or Romani people or, you know, disabled, gays, whatever it was, you know, everybody who wasn't of that area and sort of disposition was at risk at some point or another of being, you know, in the in the sights. Now, we see some of that coming through in modern day with guys like Trump and stuff like that, you know, the rise of, you know, the, the, the sort of far-right nationalism and stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, at the minute, I don't see a lot of, as we say, a lot of care amongst other political. There's a lot of, like, sass thrown his way and a bit of side-eye and people kind of, like, you know, on the world stage dismiss him a lot and, you know, kind of try and keep him at arm's length. But that's not really effective because it still allows him to go and do whatever the you know racist bullshit that is. Mm. He's doing he's locking kids up in cages and all that other nonsense now. Like when we take that back to like you know Hitler's time, you know people did moan and people did threaten him and people did again try and appease and stuff like that. Like, but you no, know, something like Winston Churchill. Did he actually like give a fuck about fascism? Was it was it purely? about the protection of the empire. I mean, had, had as we said off mic, had Germany actually went, look, Britain, stay out of our way and we'll mm. stay out of yours, would, do you think we would have been involved to the same extent? Well, historically, what what is, has always suited Britain, you know, throughout the 18th, 19th century, etc., is some sort of balance of power on the continent. You know, ideally... Lots of Germany and, you know, lots of these countries in Europe fighting each other, but none of them been top dog. Because uh-huh. while they are fucking over each other, we can be out in Africa and Asia using mm-hmm. our, you know, modern 
uh, rifles and machine guns against people armed with spears yeah. in many cases. So I think the the the, the challenge that Hitler, you know, they, I don't think he really gave a screw about, um, you know, been opposed to fascism. It looked like he was going to be cut, establish Germany as the dominant power on the continent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they tried to, if he'd stopped his expansionism, you know, a, with the Sudetenland at the end of 1938. So the Czechoslovak Republic. Yeah, the, sort of, the, the bit of the Czech Republic that borders Germany, it's got a significant German mm-hmm. uh, identifying population. That I think had been taken off of them during the World War yeah. One. Yeah. So they did a deal over that. I think the the deal was like let's appease them. We've been a, we've been a bit harsh to the Germans. If we give them a few things back that were taken off them, they'll chill out. Aye. These people are welcoming them in with and flags then, and parades. And then, so the Sudetenland could, in some ways, be justified mm-hmm. because there was a lot of ethnic Germans there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but annexing the rest of Czechoslovakia. Yeah. That showed that this is a guy who you can't do. He's not a normal person yeah. you can do deals with. Mm-hmm. And if this continues unchecked, he Germany will end up the dominant power on the continent. So that's when they thought, right, we really, we either start standing up to him now when we've still got a, a reasonable chance of winning mm-hmm. or we do it in three or four years' time when he'll be even more powerful and mm-hmm. it'll be harder. Yeah. So that's why, you know, after the, um, when Nazi Germany annexed the rest of Czechoslovakia in, you know, spring 1939, that, that was the point. They said, right, that's it. You know, There's no deals be to be made with this no guy. No deals to be made. Uh-huh. If, if, it, if things continue in this way, Germany will become the dominant power. And just to get back to the point you were asking there, if Germany does become the dominant power and, Obviously, Hitler's ambitions lay to the east, so it didn't necessarily, in the short term, threaten Britain. Mm-hmm. He was always like, "Oh, Britain, we'll be pals. You know, we'll be the dominant ones in mm-hmm. Europe. You can just, you know, have all your empire. We've got no ambitions there." But at the end of the day, imagine the continent dominated by one power, and just we're just a sweet island, yeah, off yeah, the coast so, of it, uh, yeah. twenty-two miles away at the mm-hmm. shortest point. The rest mm-hmm. of our territories are the other side. Thousands, you know, Australia, mm-hmm. thousands yeah. of miles away. That is not tenable. And also, we trade. You know, we need acts. Well, again, with Brexit, all this is changing. But historically, the, the the British could never allow the sort of channel ports to be dominated by hostile power because you know we needed into Europe to sell things and get places like Suez and stuff like that. I would imagine were probably quite. Yeah, Suez, well, that's the, uh, that the Eastern other, Mediterranean. Ah, sorry. So, um, so, yes, in the short term, a deal could have been done mm-hmm. to let Germany be the dominant power um, in Europe. But the long term, Britain's position would have been very, very vulnerable. Uh-huh. A small island so, against you- <clears throat> any country dominating the whole of Europe. Yeah. We'd have been right for the plucking Absolutely. At some point. Do you think that the the narrative of anti-fascism and fighting the Hun and is it, is that just a propaganda tool to get people that don't know any better to go and fight their war for them, rather than it being these people threaten our political power, uh, our economical power, and therefore we need to take care of them 
would a working class person basically go, well, do you know what? Fuck your political power because I don't, <laughs> I don't give a shit about yeah. your power and your money. What do I get for this? So instead, they need to spin it as, and we are ideologically against these people. These people are racist, fascist, what, whatever it might be. But actually, like the the political elite and the elite in Britain don't really give a shit about that. They don't care about political ideology. Uh, you had members of the royal family <clears throat> again in recent years showing pictures for that time where they're marching up and down the gardens of Buckingham Palace throwing Nazi salutes out and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I mean, so there was, and then the one that abdicated again had quite close yeah. ties subsequently with like the German Nazis and stuff like that. So I think the political elite definitely did not give a well, fuck Well, if, if you look at the Spanish Civil War, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. An elected Republican Democratic government violated by violent, you know, fascist military takeover. Mm-hmm. Churchill was not very vocal in his condemnation. None, none of the British re- ruling elite were particularly no. vocal in their denunciation of Franco, who obliterated uh, democracy in Spain. What would have happened as long as they didn't mess around with Gibraltar? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, another had, British terrorist. Uh-huh. Had they taken over Gibraltar? You could bet your bottom dollar it would be these terrible enemies of democracy. They're yeah. you know they're imprisoning lots of nice mm-hmm. people. You know then yeah. it would have ramped up. You know we need to defend democracy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So um, yes, I mean obviously you know what Hitler and Mussolini in Europe you know stood for was vile and despicable, and you know a. So that that was true, but it was also, I think, the the main reason for getting involved in the war was to prevent yeah. one power become the, the dominant force. We kind of see parallels with that. No, well, no parallels with that in, in any sort of like real sense, but with the sort of relationship that the West has with Saudi Arabia, let's just say that well, in one hand, if we talk about Syria or if we talk about um, Iran, it's it's about like the human rights injustices that happen in these countries as a way of them trying to sell you the idea of invading and overthrowing and dominating these countries. But Saudi Arabia goes unmentioned where mm. some of the biggest atrocities happen. There was still oh, really? see yeah. like women getting treated as second class citizens can't drive, people getting beheaded for having affairs and hands cut off for stealing. And but we don't we I think this is the hypocrisy that people are starting to get a grip of a certain section of people are starting to get a grip of where it's like, well, why are you telling me in one hand that we need to go in and fight here, but on the other hand, the, the same and worse is happening in this mm. country, but you won't. Uh-huh. In fact, worse, you're in bed with these people yeah. and we're doing deals with these people. And this is where, I suppose... Um, the message it seems to be that it doesn't matter how atrociously you behave if you can protect or enhance your interests, we're in bed with you. Mm-hmm. Well, look at... Um, Again, I'm not a student of this, but I don't think Robert Mugabe was very democratic. No, no. But there's absolutely no, there's, not. There's not no, much. He, did, he did win a number of elections by 100%. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, of course, <laughs> what, what am I thinking of? But there's no oil in Zimbabwe. Yeah. So we don't care about that. Yeah, yes. We'll let them, let them do what they like. And maybe the you know Korean, North Korean leadership, Korean, North Korean society isn't very democratic, but We'll not get involved there because that might piss off the Chinese. Are you trying to tell me that the Democratic Republic of North Korea is not a democracy? <laughs> I couldn't possibly, never have. I've been to South Korea. Next you'll be telling me Nazis won the socialists. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not get into that. Uh, no, I know. <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment on what it's like being in North Korea. Of course. So in terms of, <clears throat> you know, we've, we've kind of like essentially established that you know, Churchill's desire to 
push World War Two forward was about self interest, um, and or sorry, the nations and you know self interest was to be protected. But like, <clears throat> as that war progressed, like, how did Churchill's like imperialism? How did it manifest? Because the the book tends to kind of paint the picture that you know, as I say, D Day was something that he was not interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, that there was a number of instances where he probably like made the war longer than it had to be whilst chasing... Because I think the impression I, I got was that he, he really wanted to try and find a way to use the Russians to essentially win the sort of European frontiers and potentially the Americans in the Pacific whilst mm. he was left to kind of direct British interests and forces, you know, in aid of the mm. empire. So are there, are there examples where he's maybe hindered the war effort in favour of imperialistic well, sort of... The thing is, um, as the war, once America, the United States and the Soviet Union get involved, um, they are much bigger countries than ours. And um, we depended on American, you know, resources to fight the war. You know, a lot lot of our tanks, etc., were Sherman tanks. Mm -hmm. So, as the war goes, Britain is kind of limited, it's... There's all this talk about the big three. It was in reality, it was a big two and two. a half. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Even I'll very, very best. Two and a eight. So Britain was kind of limited. It, its influence over grand strategy declined as the war went on. But I think the, the simplest way to understand a, what, what was inspiring Churchill or where his strategy was wrong would be to look at a relief map, a physical map of Europe. I mean, firstly, he's on record on a number of occasions saying, I wish my priority would have been to get into the Balkans, the southeastern Europe. Yeah. I mean, he said that to a group of Commonwealth Prime Ministers in May 1944 and at various conferences Mm -hmm. um, with these, uh, you know, the chiefs of staff, the British chiefs of staff, our military hierarchy. Yeah. There are... multiple times and they're all documented in the book where he expressed a strong preference for action in southeastern Europe mm-hmm. and at the same time opposition to landing in northwestern Europe which the yeah. Americans always wanted. Now if you take that and then look at a map of Europe, now we probably think of the Mediterranean, Italy, Turkey, Greece and all that, yeah, a fantastically sunny place. Mm-hmm. We go there for our holidays but if you look at a relief map, topographical map, it's all mountains. Yeah, that is the last place you want to fight a I'm really sorry. well-organized army like the German army. Why on earth would you want to go and fight in a theater which is hundreds, thousands odd miles away from Germany's industrial heartland, where the Germans will be heavily entrenched? I mean, if we were to start a fight now, you know. I'd rather be at the top of the stairs kicking down at you than Absolutely. reversed. Absolutely. So, and also, you know, if you're fighting up hills, it's balmy and lovely in the summer. It's shite in the winter. You know, fighting up, you know, when there's all these streams that get overflowing, there's snow, there's mm-hmm. ice, there's rain, there's mud. And all the Germans have to do is gradually retreat step by step, blow up a few bridges here, you know, well-entrenched machine yeah. gun posts, etc. It's the worst. That's where he wanted to fight. Now, why would you want to fight there? What is the benefit? I mean, qui bono, it's Latin, is, you know, who benefits? Mm -hmm. You have to look at the context of Britain's long-term interests ever since the Suez Canal opened. 
was to be the dominant power in the eastern Mediterranean to maintain control of that area for Suez and then after oil started to be discovered in significant quantities from 1908 onwards in that region um, and after the Royal Navy started switching its uh, warships from coal-powered to oil-powered, mm -hmm. Britain, if it wanted to continue as an empire, needed to be the dominant power in southeastern Europe. So that's why I would argue there was a major emphasis on Britain getting into these places before the Soviet Union did. Yeah. So you could look and say... <clears throat> July 1943 is a big turning point. That's when uh, Germany is defeated at the Battle of Kursk. Mm -hmm. It's obvious, if it hadn't been before, that the Russians are going to advance. Now, that's a double-edged thing for Britain. On the one hand, it means the Nazis will get beaten. But if the Russians move forward, they might gain direct access to the Adriatic and the Aegean. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, like, the stands, essentially. The, you know, the what? The, the, the countries, the, the Kazakhstans, the Afghanistans, the, they're going to use that Mediterranean as a sort of pathway well, towards these countries, essentially. More like, um, there were, I mean, the Allied, uh, Anglo-American forces and forces from other countries did go into Italy. Mm -hmm. But Churchill also uh, was keen to extend uh, action into the Balkans. He tried... Yeah to get Turkey involved. I mean, again, these are things that are edited out of a lot of conventional histories mm -hmm. because, you know, it takes action. It distracts us, you know, it focuses our attention in areas where they want it to be focused yeah. on, the narrative that suits them. But Churchill initiated this campaign in the autumn of 1943 to uh, liberate the Dodecanese islands in the Aegean from Italian control. Okay. And the whole idea of that was so that they could then ferry, um, you know, tank divisions into Turkey mm -hmm. so that Turkey could then be treated to join the war and advance west through the Balkans, okay. which would very conveniently ensure that the Russians couldn't get down mm. and get... What Britain wanted was to make sure the Russians, the Soviet Union, did not have direct access to the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. They didn't want any Soviet naval bases in Greece, or they didn't want Bulgaria uh, having direct access to the Aegean. Um, they were I mean, at the end of the day, Tito, you know, Yugoslavia fought, followed a very independent line after the yeah. war. So, but they were scared that you know there might be um, the Soviets establishing a presence in the Adriatic, which just so really Churchill was trying to put wheels in motion that would block Russia out of certain parts of Europe, maintain British interests in terms of gas and oil mm -hmm. at a time when the Russians were essentially bulldozing through the Nazi army on their behalf. Yes, and again, I argue, I mean, I, get, I don't want to get into sort of, you know, some of the great what-ifs of history, but mm -hmm. the contrast, you know, I've pointed out that the whole of southeast, southern Europe that was Nazi-occupied, with one exception, is all mountains. In contrast that uh, with northern Europe, you've mm -hmm. got 1,000 miles of perfectly flat country yeah. mm -hmm. from the Urals to the Channel. So... If um, if there hadn't been um, if if there hadn't been an Anglo-American initiative in northwestern Europe, the Soviet Ar the Red Army could have just advanced just straight out, straight Portugal. along this perfectly flat country as the Germans gradually disintegrated until they reached the Channel. 
So one of the things I sort of speculate, you know, in the latter chapter 28 is, you know, there's a couple of maps there that show mm-hmm. that what could have ended up was instead of Europe being divided, you know, with Eastern Europe under Soviet control in the West, it could have been divided, you know, across the middle horizontally mm-hmm. with the Soviet Union dominant in not just East Germany, but West Germany, Denmark, Holland, sort of Belgium, Northern Europe, Northern Europe, rich, wealthy, industrial, economically advanced Europe, and had Churchill's dumb strategy been pursued, we could have been entrenched in the soft under, you know, the well, so-called the less economically advanced sections of Europe. Mm-hmm. But you know, okay, we might have had easy access to Suez and the Middle East and the Empire. But there would have been T thirty four tanks replacing Hitler's Panzers at Calais. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hardly a really good outcome. So we should be eternally thankful to people like General George Marshall, the American Army Chief of Staff, and Roosevelt, and even to some extent Stalin himself, who insisted, who coerced Churchill and Britain into following the correct military strategy to defeat Germany as quickly as possible. Which was a landing in Northwest, you know, Overlord yeah. D Day. The Americans knew that was essential. I mean, America joined the war in December 1941. Eisenhower was the, you know, the leading guy in the American War Plans Division. In early February 1942, he says, We have to land in Northwestern Europe. You know, if we do, if we land in Normandy or somewhere like that, we're just a couple of hundred miles away from the Ruhr. Uh-huh. Germany's industrial heartland. Mm-hmm. They'll have to come out and fight. They can't ignore that. Mm-hmm. We'll defeat them in battle. We'll take over the Ruhr and they're screwed. They can't continue. Churchill was wanting all Allied resources to be invested in the worst place in the world to fight Germans, uh-huh. hundreds of miles away, you know, with the Alps between you yeah. Yeah. from the Ruhr. Potentially into it. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is. He was all. He always pushed this soft underbelly idea. Yeah, it wasn't a soft underbelly. The only place that fitted that, the only part of Nazi-occupied Southern Europe that was a soft underbelly was around the southern France. You know, near Cannes, the Saint-Tropez, and all that yeah. Marseille. Yeah, because mm-hmm. that's where the Rhone River feeds in there. That's nice and flat, mm-hmm. and that's where the Americans wanted to land. Churchill opposed that. So the one part of Southern Europe that was a soft underbelly... That fit with the plan he was pushing. Uh-huh. He objected to it because mainly because once resources were invested there, that would doubly confirm France as a decisive theatre and take energy, attention, resources away from what he wanted to be the decisive theatre, southeastern Europe, uh, the Balkans. What did the, the sort of... I mean, it sounds like he was a bit of a... Shite military strategist. Yeah, doesn't to, he? I... To put it to a, a better way. Well, stop sitting on the fence there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll. but what did the what did the, the British um, military hierarchy and like the, the the generals and the people that were in charge of like the army and the navy? What did they think about what he was planning and doing at that point in time? Well, the Britain's senior military officer was uh, well, became Field Marshal uh, Alan Brooke, General mm. Sir Alan Brooke. Um, he took over as um, the dominant figure and the chief of staff. Basically, 
The British Chiefs of Staff is the, the military head of the Navy, the Air Force and the Army. And he became the dominant figure um, from late 41 when he was appointed to it onwards. Uh, by and large, he was also very hostile and anxious to, about uh, a landing in uh, northwestern Europe. I mean, I, had, I have to put a bit of context here. There were some legitimate reasons for maybe being a, a country like Britain have been a bit anxious about returning to a place where in 1914-18 there'd been mass slaughter. Uh-huh. Yeah. There was an anxiety which I think has some justification to it. And there wasn't a public appetite for the type of scale invasion necessarily. There, 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 there was been... a fear that um, if, if D-Day, Normandy, Overlord hadn't gone well, would we get bogged down in a repeat of that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's reasonable enough. I mean... You have to bear in mind if you're the minister of defence, the chief, you know you've got the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, mm-hmm. young men mm-hmm. mainly and young women as well. You know, if you screw up, there could be mass casualties, and there'd been mass casualties in the First World War, and they didn't. So that that made them a bit anxious, and also they, they'd get their arse felt in Dunkirk. You know, yep. they've been kicked out of there already. Uh, there's a number of quite seen, high profile. So there was failures. no rush, and also I think the thing that's not. Um, widely acknowledged was the very low opinion that people at Churchill and some of his leading advisors had of the British Army. Yeah, There was this amazing, uh, partly justified respect of, you know, German force of arms mm-hmm. and um, a denigration among some people, not all, uh, of what, you know, the British Army or the Anglo-American armies could do. I mean, there's one occasion where Churchill said to um, General Marshall, the American Army Chief of Staff, you know, a, you know, one German division is equal to two and a half American divisions. Yeah. And Marshall's like, I don't want to ever hear that crap again. Yeah. But when but, you look at the success of things like Blitzkrieg and all the rest of it as they swept across Europe, and, and as when you compare it to the military austerity that Britain had faced, mm-hmm. as you described, like, I think that's no unreasonable. I mean... They were horrible bastards, the Nazis. But if you look at it in purely like how effective some of their military tactics were, I can get why the hierarchy of British military were probably somewhat reluctant to engage them in those kind of terms. Because, as you say, there was like legitimate concerns about how effective they were going to be against uh-huh. them. So the things that were legitimate concerns was there could be another repeat of World War One, mm-hmm. horrible bloodbath with hundreds of thousands, a million dead. There was also grave doubts about the ability of Anglo-American armies to actually beat the Germans in a major decisive engagement. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's completely overlooked, which I think is less justifiable, is Churchill's imperial obsession. He, along with these two other things that are kind of reasonable and you can understand, was his desire to prioritise Britain's imperial position and its easy access to Middle Eastern oil. Mm-hmm. That's often excluded from the Aye. narrative. And I've tried to introduce it in yeah. the spirit of inclusion. And also trying to push like <clears throat> naval engagement in like Asia and stuff like that well, as well at a time when yeah, resources were that, that's, sparse. And that's that's like the other crazy thing idea. that I think gives credence to what I'm arguing. Before going on to that, I would say that not every uh, senior British military figure shared Churchill's views, like Montgomery, mm-hmm. 
uh, he was the um, ground forces. I mean, he did. He took over the planning of D-Day. He was a meticulous planner. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. gave the right job to the right guy. And that's one of the reasons why, on the whole, D-Day Overlord was a huge success. He had spent some time fighting in southern Italy and just thought, this is nightmare. This is the worst place in the world to fight because, you know, all the Germans have to do is blow up a bridge and we're fucked. You know, yep. we're, we're delayed for several days or weeks. We're more than armies have encountered the same he, thing in Afghanistan. He was very keen and committed to securing military success in northwestern Europe. So I don't want to say every of course. Um, British senior military figure opposed it. Uh, Bomber Harris certainly did. He was dreading uh, the immolation of our youth in the mud of Flanders again, mm-hmm. or a repeat of Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. You know, and that quote from him's in the book. So a lot of them did have doubts over it. People at Montgomery and some others didn't, um, and it was because they were so committed to making D-Day a success that it was a success. They yeah. put heart and soul into organising it brilliantly, and you know, and. I mean, there's question marks over uh, Montgomery as a, you know, what sort of personality he was, but in some ways he was like far ahead of, you know, military thinking. For example, there was one, uh, when Churchill was looking at all the troops that were going to be involved in Overlord, he was like, ah, dentists? Dentists? Why have we got dentists, including the army? And he wrote a note to Montgomery, and Montgomery just wrote back very, Promptly, it says, Prime Minister, a soldier with toothache is of no use to me. So, it's a pretty rudimentary understanding uh-huh. of how people operate. In my- Whereas Churchill was obsessed with bayonets. You know, yeah. in, 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 you know, the thing that gave, gave an army at that time the edge was being able to move your troops about quickly. Yes. You need trucks. Mm-hmm. And he would be dismissive of truck or you know, chauffeurs. Why have we got so many chauffeurs? He had this old idea in many ways of like people with bayonets on and their the red coats. So, so after that digression, if you look at what he was wanting in a you know Asia and the Pacific, once that became an important issue for Britain um, from the spring of 1944 onwards, he, he was doing the same thing. The Americans had the right idea. They knew that the the war would end quickly and with the right result through their island hopping campaign, aimed at getting to Japan's home, line, home islands as quickly as possible. Yep. Churchill opposed that. Mm-hmm. His emphasis was on regaining our imperial possessions in Singapore and Malaya. So whereas the, the Americans proposed the, a Pacific strategy aimed directly at Japan, he was championing a, a Bay of Bengal strategy. This is another one. Going from is. India into uh, Sumatra and then from Sumatra into Malaya because it was important important to our prestige to show these brown-skinned people mm-hmm. that, yeah, although we'd been kicked out three or four years mm-hmm. earlier, we were now kicking the Japanese out, so we're the top dog, respect us. But again, if you look, that's like 1,300 miles away from Japan. Yep. It would not have accelerated the end of the war. It would have strengthened Britain's empire. And like outrageous and penetrable jungle again. Like yeah. it's an absolute, like the, the you know Mediterranean strategy. Like had you actually sent bodies in there and the, the type of, you know, volumes that we were talking about, again, it would have just been an, a catastrophic yeah. bloodbath. Uh-huh. Malaya could have been, uh, if had British and American resources been invested in it. Again, that, that could have been a ter- terrible bloodbath. Again, to their credit, 
and again, just to show that you know it wasn't all everybody wasn't thinking the same way. The chiefs mm-hmm. of staff in the spring of nineteen four. 44 had a big standoff with Churchill mm-hmm. and even on a couple of occasions talked about resignation Yeah, because this Bay of Bengal strategy that he was proposing was militarily shite. Mm-hmm. It was obsessed with Britain regaining uh, rubber uh, plantations and um, tin mines in Malay and Singapore. It wouldn't bring about the rapid defeat of Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was a big standoff in the spring of 1944 which in the usual British way, well, basically, as it was reaching a critical point, you know, the Americans intervened and backed up uh, Roosevelt and his chiefs of staff supported the British chiefs of staff. So Churchill was outnumbered so again. So basically ganged up on Churchill? Uh-huh. With a correct military strategy, yep. Churchill was forced to concede and grudgingly um, advocate, you know, Myanmar, Burma became an increasing focus and by the time of the, the next big Allied conferences in September came round, he said, oh, no, we'd be quite happy for the Royal Navy to participate in action against Japan's home islands. Mm-hmm. But that's he, 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 he was forced by circumstance and overwhelming numbers to change his strategy. His strategy would have been a, a bloodbath in Malaya to almost certainly to regain our empire. It wouldn't have accelerated the defeat of Japan. So we've got... Two instances here where the, the the guy who is in our time remembered as the greatest Britain and master tactician. Did they know one something at the turn of the, la- the last uh, the the millennium? millennium. Well, well, the, the, great, the man of the hey, millennium. Dude, there, was a, there was a scientific poll on the BBC. <laughs> People know. Clearly and unambiguously identified them <laughs> as the greatest ever Britain. So. But towards the end of the war, we've got, we've got them wrong in Europe, trying to lead troops into a bloodbath. Uh, in the Alps and beyond mm. to, uh, you know, essentially try and prioritise British interests over the ending of the war. And now we've also got in the sort of Pacific and Asian regions the same thing happening where to the, the point where he's in military hierarchy have to, like, write... And it, it was very British, wasn't it? Because there was a series of quite, you know, uh, sort of letters back and forth yeah. even though there was a you know a pressing thing happening that needed to be decided and we needed to press forward and you know end the war as quickly as possible this was them bouncing you know quite coarse letters back and forward to each other over a period of time before then essentially going to the Americans and being like help us sort this guy out so <laughs> like the mythology is something that is really jumping out at me because you know the book paints quite a bleak picture of somebody who is at best, probably quite ineffective, um, and it was probably in some cases pretty incompetent. Um, how have we got to the point where he's remembered in such glowing terms? When again we have a, an alcoholic, manic, depressive, incompetent, you know? There's, yeah, but well, I, I think we have to look at you know the British public in the summer of nineteen forty-five. They weren't buying any mythology. Mm-hmm. You know, this was the man who had supposedly led us to victory and they kicked him out. Yeah. <laughs> so they were sorry, they were sussed. It was only, you know, I think um, in the period after that, there was a certain amount of revisionism, you know, as, as Britain was forced to give away its imperial ill-gotten yeah. gains, um, there was a certain, you know, 
I'm sure we've all seen them, all those black and white movies from the 50s with John Mills and Kenneth Moore, mm. you know, stressing, you know, the plucky little British underdog and yeah. stuff like mm. that. So, yeah, I mean, every every country, every individual ha- has its myths that, mm-hmm. you know, that usually paint us as the good guy. You know, when I went through a bit of a, a, well, a divorce, you know, anybody going through a divorce usually finds it easy to see how reasonable they are. Mm-hmm. And, and how, how unreasonable. Are, uh-huh. <laughs> and we tend to burnish our own good stuff. Yeah. And we're, we're maybe, we don't want to fully acknowledge our shortcomings. Britain as a country is, is um, not exempt from that. Plus the fact, you know, just because of the freakish geographical accent of the channel, we haven't been militarily invaded for a millennium, mm-hmm. you know, since 1066. So we've got a ruling elite, you know, in the continent, you know, the ruling elite was getting continually discredited because they would lose a war, then they would next win the next one, then they would lose it. And they were always getting overthrown and changing, um, whereas we've had the same bunch of blood-sucking parasites in power <laughs> for a millennium. And they've just, um, they've got the whole uh, the media, culture, education, yeah. it's all geared up to reinforce this hegemonic idea that they're right, we're wonderful, we are the greatest country on earth, our army is the best in the world, and people have lost their ability, well, I don't want to generalise, but some people accept that uncritically. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's obviously, I think, fortunately in Scotland, there's a critical mass of people who look in that uh, a certain level of scepticism. why and do you, have a I mean, different you, vision of how life can be. You've had conversations with people about why that is, because it seems to have um, be like almost like a, a, a unfortunate sort of set of circumstances between the deindustrialization of which Scotland really relied on its industry, mm. um, Thatcher, mm-hmm. who imposed things on Scotland that had drove people to like protest. In the eighties, and then coming up to like sort of Blair Brown being the sort of hope that we thought that we all needed and wanted, and then that being a clusterfuck, and then the, the independence referendum where the media clearly turned on what seemed like the yes movement mm-hmm. and tried to paint it or as something. Or notions of partiality, and, and because we were in it, we could see it for what it was. I mean, mm. I, I, the thing that comes to mind when I talk about that is the. What was the guy that was the head of Scottish Labour? The fucking Muppet. Jim the, Murphy. Jim Murphy down at Saint Square. Uh-huh. Where it, what the, the Daily Mail and the Sun made look like a gang of people screaming in his yeah. face. But if you were actually there, there was like three guys standing in front of him. Uh-huh. But it was just a clever camera angle, yeah. really. And, oh, and yeah. actually, that's what that's what went on. And we've been able to see that. So now we're very sceptical when it comes to like the British media and, and stuff. And that seems to be the sort of conclusion that we've been... We have been part of being painted as something different over the sort of last 30, 40 years where some of the nations woke up to it, but now we're starting to see like this sort of doubling down on mm. unionism and what it means to be British by another sort of section. And Aye. it's part of like identity almost. Well, they're, they're very anxious and afraid now. Um, and I think if you're. That sort of person from the ruling British elite, you know, if Scotland breaks away, you know, you're no longer Great Britain, really. Or if Northern Ireland changes its constitutional arrangements. I mean, those two things are going to impact on each other. Yeah. 
if, if there's going to be a, a border poll in Ireland in the next five years, mm-hmm. as Sinn Féin is suggesting, is going to be yeah. a big priority for them, and it does lead to a reunification of Ireland, that's that will have a big impact in yeah. Scotland. And vice versa, if Scotland you know, elects to reassert its sovereignty, that's going to have a big well, effect. Well, the last two holdouts, really, aren't they? Uh-huh. So at the end of the day, um, it's going to be very difficult. You know, It'll just be England maybe with Wales, but it'll eventually free itself as well. It'll just be, it won't be Great Britain. They'll not be able to say, you know, all these bloody lazy Great British Bake Off and all that. I hate these things. It's fucking laziness from all these yeah. morons that run, you know, the TV industry. Laziness and stupidity. And I look forward to that being challenged. And, mm-hmm. you know, for, I don't want, it's not a business to talk about other countries, but I want Scotland to choose its own path. Yeah. A different path. We're not perfect. We're not going to create utopia, but every individual should run their own life. Absolutely. So they can learn from their mistakes and profit from their good decisions. Mm-hmm. And every country that sees itself as a country should have the same right. Mm-hmm. And the sooner we get to establishing that right to choose, mm-hmm. the better. And I think Scotland's long term future will be better when we govern ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no country wants to be governed by. I mean, I've got lovely neighbours. Do I want them telling me what I should have for my dinner, what clothes I should wear? No, mm-hmm. I'll do that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I've got hundreds. I'm going down to visit friends in Oxford and Cambridge this year. Yep, I've consumed massive amounts of brilliant culture that originated in England from the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, the Sex Pistols, yeah. pulp, the Detectorists, a fantastic TV series yep. that embodies wonderful things about England and what it can give the world. I love many things about England. Absolutely. But I don't want them deciding our economic and yeah, social yeah. priorities. Something that you that really resonated there was saying that like learning from your mistakes. And if we continue to for lack of a better phrase, whitewash the mistakes that have been made in the past through education systems. I mean yeah. my, my history, through my book. Yeah. <laughs> but well your book isn't your your book isn't your book's part of breaking that yeah. sort of notion. I mean my, my history lessons were trench warfare, winning the Great War and beating Hitler. That mm. was it. There was absolutely mm-hmm. zero context. Yeah. Nothing about the Empire, nothing about massacres or famine or nothing about Ireland at all. Oh, it, was, yeah. it was all just basically yeah. like since I nineteen hundred, look how great we've become. Even this week, if you look at what's went on with the recent Irish election and the just absolute ridiculous confusion that it's caused to hear as people try to understand like their electoral process and stuff like that. Like these guys are twelve miles across the waterfields. Like how mm. the fuck do we know understand who they are and what their systems are booting? And it's because it is that Britain first mentality. Like I think as we talk about like how constitutions and you know how we're ruled and stuff like that, I find that after having read through the book the first time that the Boris Johnson's comparisons to himself with Churchill are actually valid because as much as he, you know, references Churchill an awful lot, I've always thought to myself, you're a fucking cheeky bastard because you're incompetent as fuck. Like, how the fuck? I mean, I didn't agree with everything. Churchill had a basic understanding of some stuff. But, like, that I'm going, that is a deeply unfair comparison because that guy actually achieves shit yeah. and you're just an absolute cunt. But, like, now having read the book and realising that Churchill was often incompetent, often ill-informed, and, you know, often chasing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Well, 
I probably think the Boris Johnson comparison is probably pretty fair. Yeah, there. but do you <laughs> think that Boris understands? No, that no I've read his um, <laughs> book, The Churchill Factor, and it's just lazy journalism. You know, just cherry picking, Imagine you that. know, certain things. Um, well, my my view is, um, in fact, well, I'm certainly going to send a copy of my book to Churchill's grandson, Nicholas Soames, to see okay. if I can get a nice endorsement from him. <laughs> I might, I might send it to Boris as well because, you, um, you know, the very last chapter um, is called, you know, it, it summarizes Churchill's top ten military blunders. Yep. And, and it's called Captain Mannering in Downing Street <laughs> I like because, that. because I think. I mean, I love Dad's Army for a whole host of reasons. I think there's um, a lot of overlap in many ways between Churchill and Mannering. Mm-hmm. Um, the phrase that uh, Mannering would use when Jones was coming up with weird ideas is going into the realms of fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I think Churchill was going into the realms of fantasy uh, in many occasions. Again, there's a quote from, he was an American um, statesman, Avril Harriman, he quotes... Um, a or oh, Hastings Ismay, who was actually Churchill's chief of staff, and he mm-hmm. basically Ismay says, you know, Churchill's you know a great strategist. He can have one division in action in three different places at once. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he had, um, in many ways, um, I think he all the like Hitler, you know, amateur strategist that hadn't really studied it. I think he had a sort of view of warfare where you, you know it was like you could move these things about on a board and they just did what you wanted like them risk. to. Uh huh. And you didn't take into account uh, certain things like the t- time of year, weather, and yeah. all that, mm-hmm. and yeah, logistics. Um, and you know that, that quote about you know why are the dentists? You know, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about. That. <coughs> and like you know what human nature de- describing you know truck drivers, you know sh- chauffeurs as if they've got no use. But you know if if you if you don't until you've got uh, Antwerp as a functioning port, you've got a very long drive from Normandy to the the German border. You need it was called the Red Ball Express. You need this never ending convoy of trucks bringing fuel and food and ammunition and reinforcements up to the front. Your chauffeurs, your truck drivers were absolutely vital to military success. And similarly, you know, that that was a big reason, one of the big reasons the Americans wanted to have the invasion of Southern Europe, uh, Operation Dragoon, was because it would give them access to two big ports, Marseille and Toulon, and also a... Whereas the uh, Allied air forces had bombed the hell out of the, the the rail network in northwestern Europe, they hadn't done anything to southern Europe. So you had all these nice rail lines that were still functioning. Yeah. So you could, and until Antwerp became operational again in late November or December nineteen forty four, you know, bearing in mind troops landed in June. Yep, um, about forty percent of the supplies going into the Anglo-American armies in Europe uh, at that point, were coming through Southern Europe. So it was absolutely vital to our success. And interestingly, of course, Churchill opposed the operation that gave us access to Marseille too long (laughs) and the rail network of Southern France. 100% record here. I just object now against everything that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So, yes, um, so I start off with Churchill. The book opened with Churchill sort of being born and... 
I cover his uh, you know, first 20 years and about a page or so, and I thought it would be appropriate to bookend the book by going back to Churchill. So mm-hmm. top 10 military blunders or wrong decisions or wrong emphases because he was obviously overruled in certain things. And yes, a completely gratuitous and offensive, but very accurate and pertinent comparison to George Mannering Aye. of uh, uh, the Walmington Sea Home Guard platoon. Brave, uh, active, lot of self-belief, want to defend Britain. Well, that's what Churchill and Mannering had in common. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, whereas Sergeant Wilson, would, when he saw some crackpot idea of Mannering's, would say, do you think that's wise, sir? Well, fortunately, throughout the war, Stalin and Roosevelt were saying the same thing. Yeah, they're, they're basically the home guard. Uh-huh. <laughs> In a slightly more forceful way yeah. because they were big, much bigger military, economic and industrial yeah. powers. And at the end of the day, Britain was overwhelmed. We were forced and coerced into doing the right thing militarily to bring the war in Western Europe and Europe as a whole to an end in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. Churchill didn't want to do that. He wanted to, us to faff about in the Balkans, Southeastern Europe, because it suited the British Empire and easy access to oil. So one of the, one of the earlier titles for the book was, well, it went through a few titles. One was Imperial, Imperial Obsession. Another title was Empire and Oil. Mm-hmm. That's what really fueled him. And it becomes really sharp into sharper relief after the great Soviet victory at the Battle of Kursk. Because then we could pick and choose. Up until that point, we had to fight in places that the Germans yeah. started aggro. After that, you know, and the Americans pointed this out in a paper saying, now we can choose Absolutely. where we want to go. And they went where they were gung ho for the correct military option, northwestern Europe. Churchill and his senior advisors wanted to faff about in southeastern Europe, which would have been a disaster had they not been overruled. So that's why I hope uh, I'm hoping for massive sales in America. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because ge- although it slags off Churchill, it does say that the Americans, the Americans had the right. Yeah, idea. yeah. yeah. I, I genuinely like reading the book. It was a it was a great read. But just sitting and chatting, I'm thinking, like, this is the type of shit that Netflix are just all about. Like, the sort of actual historical, historically accurate documentary where they dramatise it a wee bit, but they also Mm. have historians sort of, like, like talking. And I think, I I genuinely think that it's tailor-made for that type of thing. I mean, obviously, it was... It's been very, very well researched, which is a credit to yourself. Absolutely. Ridiculously well researched. Aye. Um, And, I mean, I, I think that you'll... If, if it gets the right backing, as we know, like things like this need the right backing. That's why right I'm people. here, guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is like an advance of like any sort of release, but if it gets the right backing and the right thing, I mean, it could be something that gets picked up for something. Oh, like I know. I, mean? right, well, I thoroughly enjoyed my reading. The, the content has been created. From now on, it's all marketing, distribution, and sales, um, which is a different ball game. So I did at one point have. Um, a respected British publisher interested in it. Um, and then after I signed the contract and sent it back to them, they changed their mind and I've been given a couple of explanations as to why that was. So um, it's, it's 
I'm sort of I'm starting off by self-publishing, mm-hmm. which you know it's kind of compelling me to be true to my punky DIY oh, ideals. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I'm quite looking forward to you know doing things like this and you know bumping my gums and you know been out there um, and hustling it and getting it on Amazon and going to lots of wee meetings and word of mouth and um, seeing what happens. Right. Um, See what kind of response you get for Churchill's grandson. I was going to say, in, in Brexit Britain, like, are you, are you getting any concerns about, you know, it being un-British, you know, that um, that no, un- I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be British. thing, you know. That I don't want to be British. I want to be uh, Scotland to be a sovereign, independent mm-hmm. state, unambiguously, and a republic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think the whole Brexit thing, um, I think, the chickens will come home to roost in that. I think the, the whole object of that is to turn us into just like a mini, mini me version of the United States, mm-hmm. you know, just rampant neoliberalism, which is never good for working class people, no. the people who actually generate the wealth. Um, it's going to mean a tremendous erosion of workers' rights, um, you know, the public sector. We're going to become, we're, we're going backwards, and we already have started going backwards. Mm-hmm. Diseases that we thought had vanished of course. are coming back. Yeah. Food banks are coming back. I mean, like my town of Greenock, um, when I was growing up as a wee boy in the 60s and 70s, it like 73,000 people, shipyards, engineering works, and the sugar refinery where my dad worked, all wiped out, and the population has gone down to about 42,000. No. Almost halved. They drove out the employment and the making of things and introduced heroin and they took away the hope that I, through historical accident, I was able and you know, people of my generation had all these fantastic opportunities. You know, going to Cambridge University on a grant, yeah. big debts. Um that that was one of the big things that I think was more prevalent back in my childhood, this idea of hope and things gradually getting better and it's been replaced by a system in which anxiety, neuroses, and doubt and insecurity thrives. They, they talk about people, oh, we want everybody to own their own home, but we're going to undermine security of employment. Yeah. How do you get a mortgage if you're on a zero-hours contract? Yeah, exactly. It's all these things, sadly, will um, come home to roost. Um, you know, it's, people think, oh, well, Brexit is done. Mm-hmm. It's not been it's done. Not even started, yeah. really, has it? I was meeting more in terms of people's attitude about, you know, this for the type of person who is viciously Brexit or pro Brexit, you know, a perceived attack on somebody like Churchill is is that is that something that you're concerned about in the current climate? I suppose I should be, um, but I can't. You know, having stumbled a trot across the truth accidentally because a quote in this book, Basil Littlehart's History of the Second World War, which was a whole starting point for all this, um, I just had to pursue what I believe to be the truth to its logical conclusion backed up by evidence. Yep. Uh, I mean, if somebody wants to criticise the book and they've got a really sexy, intelligent, inspiring quote and it's based on, based on some evidence and analysis, cool. Okay. Um, if it's just name-calling, well... You know, I'll, that'll be a new experience for me, <laughs> actually having attention paid. <laughs> so I don't know how 
Um, you know, maybe if I come back in two years' time, I'll be a coke-addled wreck. Well, let's hope not. <laughs> Looking forward to rehab. Who knows? Um, you know, you, you can never predict. Um, as William Goldman, the American, you know, screenwriter, says, nobody knows nothing. You know, in terms of what's going to be a success, you can have a hot director, three bankable stars, a brilliant script, make a good film, and it stiffs. Yeah, yeah. You can never predict mm-hmm. what how people are going to respond. Absolutely. Iggy Pop, widely revered, the godfather of punk, the first three Stooges albums tanked. Mm-hmm. You know, no, no great commercial sale. He was too far ahead of the curve, basically. So... Um, I'm in it for posterity, the long run. I'm a historian. I don't think in terms of just, you know, the short term. I, okay. I, I think in epochs and eons okay. and millennia <laughs> as well as the short term. So I will be vindicated in the long run. Fair enough. I do believe that through trial and error we'll move as a society to a better place. Because if you don't believe that, why, why, why would you? Yeah, why why get out of bed in the morning? <laughs> That's exactly it. Um, but you know, I think uh, the history of the twentieth century shows us that the only time good things happen to working class people is after a successful war with Germany, <laughs> right? You know, after yeah, you know, nineteen eighteen uh, representation of the People Act, mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of us slaughtered in the First World War. And we get the right to vote. Yeah. And I think they were obviously afraid of what happened in Russia, you know, mm. the revolution. Yeah, exactly. So let's give them the vote and stave off any more militant thing. Mm-hmm. After the Second World War, welfare state, you know, government intervention, yep. um, homes you know, for heroes, etc. etc. So it's a sad fact um, that we, we may, a crisis, we may have to go through a comparable crisis before we get a, a good place again. Because, you know, the, the post-war consensus, you know, governed Britain from 45 to the late 70s, you know, 30 dec- three decades. And then it was, um, it's been replaced by neoliberalism, which the Blair Brown government were guilty of as well. Yeah, absolutely. Just, they were like, like, the city can do whatever it wants. We're not going to monitor them. As long as we're getting enough tax revenue to fund a few wee things, you know, and share the crumbs a wee bit better. Uh, and that was proved wrong. Because uh, it went to pot in two thousand and eight, so um, hopefully it would be nice to think we could evolve without having these, yeah. you know, spasms yeah, that, of this is chaos it. and mass slaughter. Mm-hmm. It seems to be um, the way of things, but it is that that leads to change. Um, but hope I'm I'm very hopeful that the next generation of people are coming up in the information age with the internet if it can be used appropriately rather mm-hmm. than like a big bar- like fucking Twitter just seems to be like a just like a mad riot just now but once mm-hmm. we can get that to calm down and we can actually share the information I think that well I hope that we can come out the other side of this and actually look at what has actually happened the last 200 years so that we can make the next 200 better for everybody mm, yeah. rather than just for a very small percentage of people yeah. that still well, seem to have we have to because we're moving towards a world in which we'll not be able to breathe the air or drink the water mm, or yeah. walk in the sunshine <laughs> it's not going to be much worth living if you can't you know yeah. if the waters are toxic and the sun gives, gives you cancer and the air gives you you know lung disease you know industri- all this mad <clears throat> lust for material wealth has got to change yeah um, and that's that's going to be the big challenge. Um, my own view is uh, 
there's lots of things can be done. I think we need a major overhaul of the education system because this idea of like, you know, 30 kids studying things at times when this authority figure tells them and things they're not interested in, that just sets you up to be passive, you know, when you yeah, go to work. Absolutely. Mm, so we, we need rather than people. Yeah, passive workers who accept things uncritically, you know, they just get used straight, you know, it's Initially, it's the teacher that's the authority figure, and then it becomes the boss. I will stop and teaching used, people you're, how you, you think. You become alienated from yourself. You've started teaching them what to think rather than how to think. Yes, and I think a uh, was Mary Blyer, Caitlin Moran, basically said, you know, we need we need an education system that develops young people who will create jobs that don't currently exist now. Yes. You know, that level of innovative, imaginative work. So we need to give uh, kids more choice about, you know, what they study and start them experiencing some real freedom and accepting responsibility at an early age. And that's why, you know, if I was, um, I, I wouldn't want to get into politics or be the first minister and I'd maybe be tempted with the education portfolio. I think we should be putting so much more money into that and have like class sizes of 10 to 12 mm. where you know teachers should be going into school looking forward to it every day yeah because passing on knowledge and understanding and enlightenment is a fantastic buzz mm -hmm. and we could have a school system like that um if the, the lives and potential of working class people were the I think as well if we had those smaller classes and you know retooling how we approach the educational system, maybe content such as yours wouldn't be so much a surprise to so many people yeah. because people would have had a wider, more rounded understanding. Yeah, they'd, 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 they'd be more used to independent, things. critical thinking, yeah. and also think you know if schools are, are riven with you know bullying and horrible things, it's because kids. It's a horrible system. Yeah. yeah. You know, not, kids not lash out, they don't like it or they've got problems at home, so, you know, it creates problems at school. But, you know, school I went to, it was okay in many regards, but 1,200 people, that's too big, man. Yeah. Uh, you need to be more human-sized. So I would prioritise investing in a revolution in the education system, but, you know, that's the sort of thing that, you know, the you plant the seeds and the fruit, the good stuff would come, you know, twenty days, yeah. you know, twenty years down the line. Yeah, patience, and absolutely. politicians are largely governed by a very short term, yeah, absolutely. Cycle. cycle. Mm -hmm. Well, I've really, I've had an amazing conversation. It's been well, we've stayed awake. That's, that's, that's a new no, experience. No, for no, me. Absolutely, the can be extremely happy. Absolutely, right man. I think we could have just kept going and kept going. Um, but I mean, I just want thanks for coming in and talking to us. Like, um. Thanks for the copy of the book as well. Um, I think I'm probably going to just get to people. Aye, <laughs> so just just people right, that undercut my sale. No, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, I would I, I would always like when I when I give people if it's like music. Um, if I listen to something on Spotify or Apple Music and I genuinely love it, mm. I'll buy it in whatever way, maybe just even a 49p yeah. mp3. Oh, so yeah. I would say to people, if you read this book and you enjoy it, when it comes out commercially, go and Probably. fucking buy it, because yeah. I'm going to do that as well. Yeah. I'm going to get the, the, the final copy of it. Um, so thanks for the copy of the book. I'm going to share it with people. Um, thanks for coming in. It's been a ridiculously informative conversation, but it, I think that the, the links between how 
the, the Second and the First World War are viewed and how we live today is actually still quite daunting and scary for me that mm. we still hop back to a time of like nearly 100 years ago and see that as some kind of fucking example of how we should live yeah. in a completely different world. That um, whole notion that we'll be all right going forward with Brexit because we won the World War. Aye. And you're like, well, hold on a minute. Did we? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And if we did, well, was, not, it, was it as a result of anything we actually did? You know what I mean? Not no. with 80 or 90% of German casualties occurring in the Eastern Front. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we exactly. finished it off. Um, I suppose we could do another podcast with asking the question, did Britain win the war? We were on the winning side. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Aye, but did we actually? Pretty sure I already covered this on the blog. But anyway, again, <laughs> nice to see you. Thanks very much. <laughs> no, no, it's been my pleasure. Um, been able to bump my gums about some that I've that I've invested so much bloody time in, uh, <laughs> and it shows. It really does. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. <laughs>